We are starting a new series today, and so if you're new, this is a great time to be here as we start this new uh, series together. It's going to kind of lead us up into Easter, uh, and so if you're watching online as well, we're so glad you guys are tuning in, or if you're watching this later through the podcast as well, and we are going to venture through the letter of the Philippians uh, to the Philippian church uh, over this next six weeks, and we're super excited about it. We don't do this very often, but what we're going to do is we're actually going to take a book, and we're going to study it together. So it's going to be like a giant kind of Bible study and kind of explaining some stuff to it, and the good news is is, there's no secrets. You are more than welcome to read it. It's in your Bible, or you can download the YouVersion Bible app and read it for yourself as we kind of work through the content here. Now, to start this series, uh, what I want to do is start with a conversation, and today will not be any resolve. So I'm going to talk for about 30 minutes, and you're going to be like, well, that was interesting. He ended us on nothing. And so we're going to kind of do this. I do this. When we do a series, uh, we take about six weeks worth of material, four to six weeks, which would be about a five or six hour sermon, which none of you want to set in on, okay? And so we break it up. Uh, you'll hear from Spencer here in a few weeks as well. Um, and Rusty will cover a couple weeks in this conversation as well. But it's a start of a conversation. And as we start this letter, as we start this conversation, what I want to do is talk about ideas. The power of an idea. Ideas are what make the world go round. Everything that you and I kind of experience is all based on an original idea that somebody had. The clothes you wear, the room we're setting in, the fact that there's HVAC, there's clean drinking water, there's toilets, all ideas, right? I mean, it was an idea that somebody had, and then it eventually became part of our reality. In fact, the Harvard Review says, the power of an idea is our ability to capture it, harness it, and to bring it to life. Everything started as an idea. And I'm kind of weird when I think about like things, you know, I always think about like, who was the first person to, you know, so like blue cheese, you know, like who was the first person to be like, hey, it's rotting, it's turned colors, you know, let's give it a shot, you know, um, I mean, it's kind of a weird thing, right? We think if somebody ate that or like anything, like foods and things that we eat, things we put in our body, you know, obviously we're kind of in like bourbon country and all that stuff, but like fermenting things, you ever think about like fermenting things? Like it's just weird, like that somebody thought we're going to do all of these things, put it together, and then we're going to consume it and hope we don't die, right? I mean, it's kind of a weird thing, but everything started as an idea and there's been great ideas, right? I mean, um, 10,000 songs in your pocket, right? The iPod, which eventually became the iPhone, which now everybody in here is addicted to, right? Okay, and, and so it's one of these things. It started as an idea, and then someone took that idea, and they harnessed it, they developed it, and they brought it to life. When you think about it, everything we experience that we just now accept as part of our reality started as an idea for someone, and then it happened, and there's like small ideas that become part of our life, but then there's also grand big ideas that change the way the world operates. It changes human history. Even our history as a nation, as a people, has ideas. And sometimes things are good ideas, and some things are bad ideas. Anybody ever been a part of a bad idea, right? Anybody? Just me? So we've all had those, okay? Bad ideas. And what's interesting is sometimes something starts as a good idea, but if it's not thought all the way through, it could actually become a bad idea somewhere along the journey. You know, for example, some good ideas. It's a good idea that people should have religious freedom not controlled by the state, dictators, or the government. It's actually a really good idea. In fact, if you may or may not know this, the original settlers of this country came here to escape 
church that was being ruled by the government body at the time. They were being persecuted for their beliefs, so they got on a boat and came over here. And so it's a good idea that we should allow people to have these religious freedoms not controlled by the state, dictators, or the government. So that's part of the story. But it's a bad idea to take land from indigenous people just because you can. That's part of our story too, right? It's a bad idea. It wasn't thought all the way through. Okay, and in fact, it's actually a really bad idea to try and take land or a nation from anyone just because you think you can. And the sad part about our existence as human beings is we still haven't learned those lessons, have we? It's a good idea that government should be of the people. Representatives of the needs and desires of the people, they should listen to the people they are leading, not making decision without the conscience of the people. That is a really good idea. It's called democracy, Right? It's what we do. It's our government. You know, part of our country's foundation was on no taxation without representation. Don't tell us what we're going to do unless we have a seat at the table. It's a great idea. But part of that and part of it, the decisions that were made, is as our country is being developed, it's a bad idea to think that we can enslave people to do our work and our will. It's actually a really bad idea. In in fact, the Bible talks about this. To profit off the backs of the oppressed is always a bad idea. It's a good idea because of that, that men, all men should be free. That we were created with these rights and that all men all over the world, not just here, should be free. It's a good idea that believe that all men are created equal. We all start the same. We are all created equally. And just in case you didn't know, that's women too, because no duh, right? Okay? It should be obvious. Equal. It's a good idea when we take these things and we make them and we harness them, we make them a part of the fabric of who we are. And that's what we've done as as people, as human beings, time and time again. Ideas are what make up who we are. And our belief in those ideas and our dedication to those ideas, good and bad. And there have been bad ideas and there have been men and women who have started movements with bad ideas and bad intentions. And so what do we do with the ideas that shape us? Now, the interesting thing is when we think about the Bible, the Bible is a collection of letters and books. It's not one book. It's a collection of them. And the Bible itself is full of all kinds of ideas, ideas of what could be possible, ideas of what humans can live up to in our full potential. And and so there's all of these ideas that if we take hold of them and harness them and bring them to life, it can not only change us, change our families, but also change the culture around us, change the world. That was the belief of these men and women who write these books and write these letters. And Paul is this guy early on in the church who has this mission of taking this information, these ideas that he has, and challenging, encouraging churches and reminding people of who they are and what the hope that they have. And so this next month, we're going to take a look at one of those letters that was written that is full of ideas of what could be possible. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on Philippians, he says this, 
get used to inhabiting this letter and let it inhabit you because what Paul wants his hearers to do in this letter is to learn to think differently. Again, he's given us ideas to challenge us, to think in a messianic way, in the Jesus way. There is a great deal in this letter about a whole new way to think, to think wisely, to think discerningly about God, about Jesus, and about yourself. So he's writing a letter to a group of people. And this is always an important question to ask because we talk about this in the What is the Bible class All of the books, all of the letters had an original intent. There was an audience. There was a group of people that these things are being written to or written about. And Philippi is no different in the book of Philippians. Now, a little history for you because I'm a history guy. So Philippi is this small rural kind of like farming community on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. And there isn't much to it until about 42 BC. In 42 BC, there's this outbreak of civil war that happens because of the assassination of a guy named Julius Caesar. And because of this, the civil war takes place within the Roman Empire. And on one side, you have Mark, Anthony, and Octavian. And on the other side, you have Brutus and Cassius. Okay, hopefully you paid attention in a little bit of history class. Okay, and so the civil war breaks out between these guys about the death of Julius Caesar. But really, it's a power grab to see who's going to rule the Roman Empire. Because as we've talked about before, at this point, and this is not an exaggeration, Rome rules the world. And so who's going to be the next leader, essentially, of the world? And so there's this massive battle that takes place in Philippi in which 200,000 men go to war against each other. 200,000. Eventually, Mark Anthony and Octavian win the war, but they've got a problem. They've got these 200,000 men, these hardened, war-ridden men, and their fear is they don't want to bring these guys back to the capital city Because what happens if these 200,000 men all of a sudden decide, hey, apparently it's up for grabs who can be in control. And so they decide what they're going to do is they're going to leave those men and they're going to gift them the region of Philippi. And so all of these soldiers and their families, they start to colonize this little bitty farming community. So much so that 100 years later when Paul enters there, it's this massive city. Essentially, it almost becomes, for lack of a better term, a retirement community for the Roman Empire. It becomes the Florida of the Roman Empire, okay? That's what it becomes. And it's this massive city by the time Paul comes. Now, Paul comes there on his, one of his first missionary journeys. And the interesting thing about Philippi is it, Philippi is actually considered what we would call Europe now. So it's actually one of the first regions of what modern-day Europe is to actually hear about Jesus. So he goes up there, and he meets with these people. Now, what's interesting is because these are retired military men and women, Okay, they've served their duty to Rome, but they also have some questions about Rome and some challenges when it comes to Rome's thinking. And so when Paul comes in, they're actually open to what he has to say a little bit. Now, the interesting thing about this is after this this, uh, fight takes place, what we see is Octavian, who eventually becomes um, Augustus, the emperor, who take over as the Caesar, he makes the belief in the Caesars like a religion. In fact, one of the things you have to understand is the Caesars were like gods, They weren't just leaders, they were gods. And anything they say was viewed as if it was the words of a god. So when Paul comes in on his missionary journeys, he's not only battling all of the cultural differences, he's actually now battling like a statewide religion about the religion of Rome and the emperors. And so he goes in and a lot of people, they're open to this message. In fact, a church gets established there. And then Paul does what he does. After the church is established, he leaves. 
And so about 10 year passes in between the time that Paul's there and when he writes this letter. And what's happened in that time is that Paul has now become in direct opposition with the Roman Empire because, again, they believe that what they think and what the Caesars are is like as a religion, that Caesar is God. So anyone that's preaching a message that there's actually another God and actually a God that rules all things, this is going to be a problem. And so at this point, we believe that Paul's been arrested a couple times. He's been attempted to be killed. And when he writes this letter, he is in prison. Just so you know, anytime you start a story with, while I was in prison, all right, something hasn't gone right. It's not ideal. And so Paul is facing all of these hardships. And so the church in Philippi, who loves Paul, they hear what he has to, they hear his conditions. And so what they do 10 years later is they collect a massive offering and gifts and they send it to Paul, who again is in prison. When Paul receives these things, he's overwhelmed at their generosity and support. And so because they've done this in response, he writes them a letter that he sends back to the people that we now call the Philippian letter, or in your Bible, the book of Philippians. So Paul, when he's writing this letter, it's this interesting thing because he's facing difficulty and hardship, but he's also writing to a group of people that themselves are facing difficulty and hardship. Because again, their belief system now in Jesus is in direct opposition with what the rest of Rome is kind of doing. And so it's a hard thing to be a Christian in this first century world. And so he writes this letter and he's encouraged by their support, but he also wants to encourage them. And so he opens his letter with this kind of giving thanks for who they are, but also a prayer for the people. And what's fascinating to me is, is that when I read this, is this idea, it's interesting that, see, for us, and let's just go ahead and say this, when we're going through hard times, okay, and all of us will, but the fault for most of us, and when we're going through hard times, is to make it all about us, right? And here's the thing you have to know. Um, when we're going through hardships, we like to start the conversation with our side of the story and what's going on with us. Essentially, and I hope this doesn't offend you, but it's just true, we like to complain. And if you don't believe me, just get on Facebook, right? And your, your, your sweet spot for Facebook is all about Shepherdsville. They love to complain on that little thing, Right? You all laugh because you know it's true. It's all complaints. We love to complain when things aren't going our way, don't we? It's what we do. And what's fascinating is Paul, who had more right to complain about anything, doesn't. He talks about his hardships, but he presents his hardships in almost like a way like this is an opportunity, which is insane, right? Because when we're going through hard things, I don't view it as an opportunity, I view it as a trial. I view it as I'm suffering. I view it as I'm being persecuted. And so Paul, he does this and he opens this letter and and he gets this idea. And this is what we're going to focus on today is this one idea that Paul gives us. Because again, ideas shape the world. Ideas shape our belief system. Ideas shape who we are. And so Paul gets this interesting idea in Philippians. And this is a popular verse. Maybe you've heard it before. But in Philippians chapter one, he's writing this letter and he says this in verse 21. For to me... To live is Christ and to die is gain. Now let's leave it up there for a second because this is a fascinating, fascinating sentence. So for Paul, for to me, so my understanding is to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, I gotta be honest with you. 
There's not a person in here, even if you have the best faith, that would say, honestly, right now, to die is the game. Nobody wants to die, right? There's this famous song, everybody wants to go to heaven, nobody wants to die, right? We don't want to die. We do so much, right, to preserve this life. And understandably so, I'm the same way, right? We want to live. But for Paul's understanding, here's what he understands. His acknowledgement in this is this. He realizes that life is hard, life is going to be hard, and his firm belief is that when he dies, he goes to be with Jesus. And so for him, it is better that he die, and he understands that because he gets to go be with Jesus. But he does another fascinating thing, because I think some of us would agree with that. But, but here's what's interesting. So he says that, but he has this little, little tag right before it, to live is Christ. And here's the fascinating part. See, for a lot of us as Christians, let's just be honest. We became a Christian because we have two options, heaven or hell. And I bet the music's going to be better in hell, but it doesn't sound like a fun place to go, does it? (laughs) Right? Doesn't sound great. And so we think the, the reason we became a Christian is because someday we get to go somewhere. In fact, our language, we sing songs like, I'll fly away. You're not going to fly, tough news for you, but um, I'll fly away, which is this idea, ready for this, and this is reality, is I become a Christian, and now I'm just waiting to die, right? I'm going to die one day, I go to heaven, and everything in between, who cares, right? Because I get to go to heaven. Now, is that true? Yeah, we, we believe that when you die, you get to go and be with the Father, and it's going to be this thing, or the Father comes to us, and you should take the what is the Bible class, all right? So I explain all that. So, but here's the thought. But Paul has this interesting thing. He thinks, yeah, okay, I understand that one day I'm going to die and get to be with God, and that sounds great, but to live is Christ, which means that if he's alive... He's with Christ here and now as well as when he's gone. And essentially what we're going to see is we're going to look at some statements from Paul. Paul believes that there's work to be done here. And that is what it is to live as Christ. That when he's alive, he's going to be living as Christ. So what does that mean? Okay, so in Galatians chapter 3, another letter that Paul writes to a church, he says this. It's not coming up on the screen. I'm just going to go through these quick. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here's what he's saying. Whatever happened to him and happens to us when we become Christians is something changes. Something new happens. And whatever we were before, whatever our goals in life before, they shift a little bit. And something new takes place. To live in Christ, to live is Christ, is this understanding that the way we see the world has shifted a little bit. In Philippians 1.22, which is the same book we're studying out, he says, If I am to go living on in the body, this means fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. And then here's the line. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. So here's what Paul just said. It would be better if I die because I'm tired of getting beaten and imprisoned. But see, I've got this thing with Jesus where I believe there's work to be done here. 
and he's got a mission for me and a purpose for me. So listen, I understand it's better for me to stay here in the body, which is essentially his way of saying, I'm willing to do whatever it takes for you, even if that means me suffering. In 1 Corinthians, he says this, be imitators of Christ. So what does that mean to be imitators of Christ? What does it mean to live is Christ? Okay, what does it mean to actually do this? And I think that we misunderstand this. See, I think for some of us, and I'm gonna hurt some feelings and I'm sorry, but this is just true. Um, we as a church, not necessarily Journey, I think we've done a pretty good job, hopefully, but as a church as a whole, we've really messed some people up. Some of you think to live as Christ means you have to come to church every week. Now, is church important? Absolutely. Is being together with the body important? Absolutely. Is every week breaking bread together? Absolutely. For some of us in this room to live as Christ, this is it, right? We think that if we get together and we listen to some guy talk for 30 minutes because we had to suffer through that, just like Jesus suffered on the cross, same thing, you know, if we could live through that and we sing some songs and we give some money, we've lived as Christ, I think that's what Paul's talking about. Or how about this? Maybe some of you, like when you think to live as Christ, when I tell you that, what you think is this. You think what it means to live as Christ is that now we have to go around because we have Jesus and we're right and everybody else is wrong, na-na-na-na-boo-boo. So what we have to do is we go around and we have to judge and condemn everybody. What's fascinating, as we studied a couple of weeks ago in John 3.16 even the son of man did not come to condemn. So if Jesus didn't come to condemn and we're supposed to live as Christ or as Paul is talking about here, what makes us think that we're supposed to condemn people? It's a good question. Or, or maybe what you think of when live as Christ is you think that what we're saying is you have to go around and quote Bible verses to people for everything. You got those people in your life? They got a verse. Listen, the Bible is one of the most interesting and fascinating and important pieces of writing ever. And there's some verses that need to be quoted. Quoting Bible verses at people, not always a good idea, right? Or maybe what you think it is to live in Christ is you have to go around and do what I'm doing at work. So you just get up on your break room and you put a little microphone on and you just preach to everybody. Or maybe you think that your job Job, I said that real funny, like I'm from a foreign country, um, is to don't even speak that language, is to convert everybody, right? And so like that's in intimidating. Like I had to go convert everybody. Or, or maybe for you to, to be in Christ means you only wear Christian t-shirts and put Christian signs up on your wall and drink out of Christian coffee mugs, April. And so you just think that <laughs> I just give her a hard time. She's wonderful. And you got to get rid of Netflix and subscribe to PureFlix, right? Maybe, I don't know. But if that's what it is to be in Christ, see, I think there's something different to it. I think what it means to be in Christ is Paul's going to tell us, it's our willingness to pour ourselves out for other people. Paul has this great line later where he says, I became all things to all people which means that when he went to different groups of people, he didn't treat everybody the same. He realized that with different groups of people, I have to act differently and talk differently and say things differently because for me to be able to influence them for Christ, I have to be willing to think a little differently. Maybe in Christ is all about how we treat our families 
and our friends and to those we do not know. Let me tell you a little secret. <clears throat> do you want to know how I know if you're like living in Christ? It's not by your attendance. Let's go talk to your kids. They'll tell me. <laughs> talk to your spouse. They'll tell me. Paul does this interesting thing in the book of Colossians. And he says, and whatever you do. So he's not limiting following Jesus to an experience once a week on a Sunday. He's saying, and whatever you do. So whatever you do, you do it as if you're doing it for Jesus. So everything you do. In fact, we look at Ephesians. It says that he rules everything and is everywhere and is in everything. So apparently to be in Christ is not just about some experience. It's about the way in which we view ourselves and we view the world. And maybe it's about being aware of who we are and the world around us. Ephesians says this. It says, how to embrace to live as Christ is to be evident in our lives as that we are his workmanship who have been created in Christ Jesus for, ready for this, for good works. Which means that according to Paul, that part of this experience is to do good for people, to do good things. Now, he doesn't say harmful things or hurtful things or hateful things. And I'll be honest with you, we've done a lot of that as a church. It's about how we view ourselves, how we view this world we find ourselves in, and our willingness to give of ourselves for others. Next week, we're going to dive into this a little bit more. But as you study the book of Philippians, what you find is the center point of Philippians, the main point of Philippians takes place in, in chapter two. And so the rest of the, liter, the letter kind of wraps around this little poem. Now, what we understand about this poem that we're about to read together is this is not unique to Paul. This is actually what most scholars believe was actually a saying that was kind of preached amongst the early church. And Paul just kind of quotes it here in his letter. And so here's what he says. He says, when you do things... Do not let selfishness or pride be your guide. Now, let's just stop there. As Americans, there's your sermon. I'll be honest about myself. Almost everything I do comes from a place of selfishness and pride. And I'll take it on the chin. I'm sure I'm not the only one. When you do things, do not let selfishness or pride be your guide. Instead, ready? Be humble and give, go back, sorry, and give more honor to others than to yourselves. That sounds terrible. Like, doesn't that just sound miserable? I mean, be honest. Nobody says this. Do not be interested only in your own life, but interested in the lives of others. And why do we do this? In your lives, you must think and act like Christ Jesus. So listen, before we go to the next slide, Whatever he's about to say next is what it means to be in Christ, according to Paul. This is the sinner. You ready? Christ himself was like God in everything, but he did not think that being equal with God was something to be used for his own benefit. Well, that's interesting. That Jesus, who was God in every way, did not think that being equal with God was something to be used for his own benefit. It wasn't helpful when he was here. Ready? 
But he gave up his place with God and made himself nothing. He was born as a man and became like a servant. Last week, we talked about the Eucharist, which is this idea of communion, Lord's Supper, whatever words you want to use. And the interesting thing is when we see Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, which are the synoptic gospels, when we, we see their writings of the Eucharist, what we talked about last week is they get to this moment where Jesus breaks the bread and then takes the wine and gives it to him. And there's this little line where he says, now do this. And what we tend to think is that do this is all about just literally the act of breaking the bread and doing the wine. But what a lot of scholars will talk about is this idea, was do this not just about the breaking of bread and drinking of wine, but was do this about what's going to happen next? Is do this actually about the act of pouring yourself out for others by serving and giving and loving, even when it's hard and even when it doesn't make sense? Now, the fascinating thing is the one gospel that's not a synoptic gospel will be John's gospel. John's gospel is written much later than all of the other gospels. Now, John is actually one of the only gospels that we have that he was actually a follower of Jesus that we believe wrote that letter. And so when John writes this, what's interesting is John would have been there at the Last Supper. And what John tells us is something happens before the Last Supper. And in John chapter 13, what we see is this famous story where Jesus, before he's going to do the Last Supper, the Eucharist, he actually goes in and he washes the disciples' feet. It's this ultimate act of service and giving of yourself. It's an it's a, it's a act of not like being humble and, and realizing and putting somebody else above you. It's a very low act in their culture. Nobody would want to do this. And Jesus washes their feet. And then he says this in verse 14, and I'll just read it to you. He says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Now, he's not talking about the fact that we come in here and we should have foot baths. What he's talking about is the act of being willing to serve even if it costs you your pride. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. Then... He tells them that he's going to leave. He's about to die, that something's going to happen that's already been set into motion that can't be undone. So he's going to leave them. And before he leaves them, he wants to give them, are you ready for this? A new idea. Because ideas shape the world. And in verse 34, he says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Now, let me be honest with you. Okay, when I see this and I think about this, so the way I'm supposed to love someone is as Christ has loved me. How has Christ loved you? Fully and completely in spite of yourself. Can I go ahead and tell you something? And you're not going to like this, but I'll say it about me. We are really selfish, prideful dirt clods, aren't we? We have done horrible things to people. We have thought horrible things and said horrible things and done horrible things, not only as individuals, but collectively as the human species. And yet the challenge is to love as he's loved us, which is fully, completely in spite of it. The language that he uses in Romans is while you were still enemies. You got any enemies? At one point you were viewed as an enemy and he still loved you anyway. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So he gives this like beautiful teaching and this beautiful picture of what the world could look like. It's an idea of what could happen if people actually loved each other in spite of ourselves because we are so self-aware of who we actually are. And do you know what the disciples ask? Jesus, you said you were going somewhere. Where are you going? It's like they just missed the moment. And so do I, and so do you. 
And so Paul says that in chapter two, it's like we should be poured out like a drink offering, which is this idea of giving of yourself as Christ gave of himself. Now, remember, the thing you have to remember about this letter is that Paul's writing this, again, while in prison. And what's fascinating, if I can leave you one more thought, is this. See, when we're going through hard times, and I'll go through hard times and you'll go through hard times, our tendency is to be, what can I get, right? I'm going through a hard time. What are you going to offer me to make me feel better? What can I give or get? What's fascinating, and this is one of the most uncomfortable truths that I've learned in life. Sometimes we have more to offer in our pain and suffering than we ever do in our triumph and prosperity. Did you know that? Sometimes you have more to offer the world around you in your pain than you ever do in your joy. Because we are constantly surrounded by people who are struggling and hurting, whose lives have been turned upside down just as ours have. And sometimes even in our suffering, we're called to be poured out just as Jesus and his suffering was poured out. Now, the pushback for a lot of us is this. When it comes to loving and serving other people, here's what we think. Well, I would, but the problem is they don't think like us, talk like us, look like us, believe like us. They aren't deserving of our help, time, or effort. And nobody wants to admit that, but we think that, right? I mean, they're terrible people. Why would I help them? Or or they've been selfish before. Why would I help them? Or or they've said these things, or they believe differently than I do. Or or listen, at the end of the day, I just don't don't want to give of myself for them. And here's what I want to say, and this is just my opinion, so you can do with it what you want. But I am so glad that Jesus didn't put the prerequisites on me when he came to me in my pain and my heartache that I'm so willing to put on other people. I'm so glad that he didn't take into my selfishness and pride. I'm so glad he didn't say, okay, you know what? You don't look like me. You don't talk like me. You don't act like me. I don't think I can offer you anything. So to live is Christ. So what does it mean? What does it mean for you and what does it mean for me? And what does it mean if the idea can be taken and harnessed and captured and brought to life? How would that change you? How would it change your family? How could it change our community? And how could it change the world? It's a great question. We'll just have to talk about it for the next five weeks. Let's pray.